Good morning, church. Good to see you all this uh, this morning. Well, in our study of 1 Timothy, our verse-by-verse -verse study, we've talked in general about um, how the church should act. We talked about how the men should act. We talked about how the minister should act. Well, ladies, it's your turn today. Um, instructions for women. So we're on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 through 9. That will be our text for today. Now today in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to we're going to dive in that's probably one of the hottest debated texts in our age. You know, and while there's some real interpretive challenges here, the real conflict is not about what the text does or does not say, but rather how we approach God's holy scripture here. That's where the real rub comes in. You know, today there's too many you know, who just approach God's word, especially this particular text, um, and they do it not to discover or to submit to God's teaching here or God's will, but just to reaffirm their own paradigms or their own particular beliefs. In other words, they go into it with their minds already made up, you know, and they just want to prove something of their own beliefs. The truth is, for many years, some have used the Bible to ban women from doing many things in the church, in and out of the church. And many of those people that do that, they have really no interest in honest Bible study that might force them to rethink or force them to change. And that's unfortunate for them. And then to add to this, this problem here, our culture's current pandemic of critical um, feminist theory and liberal theology and postmodern her uh, hermeneutics, um, which always almost deny biblical authority and have caused many people to just reject the Word of God altogether. They just don't want to have anything to do with it. And in studying this text, and if you were to study this text, you'll find out you'll find just, just countless pages of unrealistic speculation on this text, and a few just flat-out lies is, is so far out there about the context and alleged meaning of these spirit-filled words. I mean, you can find everything from A to Z if you look for it hard enough. So today, as we approach God's Word, let me begin with the first of several pastoral warnings here. Anyone who willingly ignores or just rejects or worse even yet, seeks in any way to muddle the meaning of God's word, reveal themselves to be the very kind of false teachers that Paul wrote this to, um, to confront here. So we need to be careful about the way we approach the word of God. Well, with that said, here's my proposition. God can, and he did make clear what is essential for us to know and do. So, as we study this text in 1 Timothy and the whole book of 1 Timothy, basically you'll see that we're about to study every tree in the forest here, but we honor Christ by, by fully submitting to what he has made clear. On the things that he's made clear, we need to fully submit to that. No ifs, ands, or buts. Other things we continue to study on. So here's my three goals for today. First of all, I want to speak boldly on what is clear. And I think I can do that. 
And second, I want to speak humbly as I explain my interpretive choices on secondary issues, which you may have some that's just as good as I do. And third, I want to inoculate God's people here at Cabin Swamp against the deadly viruses of some very popular but mistaken uh, interpretive approaches, um, which, like all of Satan's lies, sound good at first. You know, all of his lies are that way. So let's just jump right into the text here. You know, Paul's stated goal here is that, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, is that we, we might know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God, talking about we may know how to conduct ourselves in the church here. And in chapter 2, Paul's instructions are applicable to everyone, but expli um, explicitly addressed to men in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. We talked about that last week. Well, in verse 9, when we get to verse 9, the whole thing just shifts a little bit when you're reading there. If you'll notice the phrase, it says, likewise, also women. And just like verses 1 through 8, verses 9 through 15 that we'll be using today have application for everyone, but I want you to notice that the focus is not on all women everywhere but it's on the redeemed women of a gathered church. You understand what I'm saying? The Christian women of a gathered church. Now, Paul gives us three universal commands to all truly godly women here. And Paul's verbs are the interpretive keys here. And we have to key in on those verbs. And to find the first one, we got to back up to verse 8, um, where Paul said, I desire where he said, I desire. Now, I don't want to get too willy wonky on, on the Greek grammar because I'm just not that good at it, and I'm so limited at it. But in verse 8, Paul combines I desire with the infinitive to pray. Those are the two words that go, those are the two phrases go together. And then in verse 9 here, the same verb is used, and it combines with a new infinitive to adore. Now, on the surface, you would think when you look at the, and you and we say it today, I desire. On the surface, you'd think that speaks of, of a strong longing, you know, and it's really not a command. It's something that we want to happen, but it's not a co command. But the word here, um, balume, it expresses an inward predisposition, you know, to willfully deliberate or um, to have purpose or a willful uh, conscience. And um, Spires Zodiac, um, he says this, he was a Greek-American Bible scholar. And here's what he says. He says, when the verb is combined with an infinitive, it becomes an implied command. Now, he's a, a guru at this stuff. You know, he knows this stuff a whole lot more than I do. So, in all of our, our assemblies here, Men are to pray. Women are to adorn themselves in these prescribed ways. That's what we can learn from the text by looking at the, the original language here. But do note this, this the external compliance that Paul desires, um, it must come from willing hearts. We've got to want to be that way. Well, godly men and women are inwardly predisposed to do what is right and pleasing in God's sight. We're predisposed to do that. So specifically then, number one on your outline, godly women are to adorn themselves properly. 
Godly women are to adorn themselves properly. Now, they ought to always do that, but Paul is speaking here about public services when he's talking here. Verses 9 and verse 10 says, Likewise, also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for the woman who professes godliness with good works. Now, the word, the word here to adorn, that idea comes from the Greek word cosmio, from which we derive cosmetics. You know, it just describes the garnishing or decorating of something to bring attention to it or to bring honor to it. So to all women who profess godliness, Paul gives specific instructions on how not to beautify their bodies and their hair, but how to beautify their, their uh, countenance and their, their character, you know. And so ladies, your church apparel should always have three marks. Number one, respectability. Number two, modesty. And number three, it should have self-control. Now, respectable means in accordance with accepted cultural norm. That's what that means. You know, we don't dress the same for McDonald's as we do a nice restaurant on a special occasion, or at least most of the time we don't. Maybe some of us do. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't dress the same way, you know, that we work out um, as we do when we worship the high king of heaven. It should be a little bit different. But the bottom line is this. Here's what I'm trying to say. If you dress properly, Christ, not you, will be the center of attention. And that's what Paul was talking about here. You know, if your adornment is, you know, if it attracts too much attention, you're not just expressing your individuality or you're not just nobly challenging some archaic norms here. But what you're really doing is you're just being disrespectful to God. So now, both modesty and self-control refer to sexualized dress here. Immodesty draws attention to one's sexuality, and those without self-control display a pathological need to be sexually noticed by others. And then Paul goes on here to forbid flamboyant hair and fashion. Now, this is not a literal prohibition against ever wearing braids or jewelry, by no means, but it's against, God, it's against gaudy displays. That's what he's trying to say. You know, Paul did not want anyone drawing attention to themselves at a time when everybody's attention should be on Jesus. He didn't want anything to distract from that. Now, um, at this time, particular this time in history, it was quite fashionable for wealthy, proud women to style their hair in elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven and piled high, you know, like towers and decorated with gems and, and or gold and or pearls and the whole thing. I mean, it was a big to-do. Now, when I think about, about that, when I read piled high, I remember when I was teaching at um, Pungo Christian Academy, there was a, a tall girl there, long blonde hair, very tall, and we were doing something special, but her hair was so long and thick that she put a, a two-liter bottle up here and covered it with her hair. So it made her, 
look about four foot taller than she was. Well, you couldn't see the bottom. You know, it was just the hair there. So when I read this, I'm thinking, you know, that was a real weird looking um, scene that come on here. Well, just imagine the poor guy sitting in church behind a four foot hairdo. You know, he'd never be able to see the, the speaker there. And then not to mention with all those jewels and stuff in there, he's thinking, you know, how many years his family could eat with the wealth that was stuck in her hair, you know? So anyway, um, at best, this kind of flaunting uh, of wealth, it kind of displays pride and um, self-centeredness that should never mark a Christian woman. It shouldn't be that way. Now, godly women are to display their, their fear of God, not their vanity, and that's what Paul was trying to get across here. And the best way to do that is to focus on the unfading inner beauty, you know, through a life of good works. So here's Paul's second universal command. When the church assembles, all godly women are to be true learners. When the church assembles, all godly women are to be true learners. Verse 11 says this. Now I want you to Pay special attention to the very first word there, let. Let a woman learn quietly with all submith, sub, submissiveness. Now, this is a shockingly positive command. And I say that because Paul just set aside centuries of tradition by declaring what Jesus had modeled as the new church, new rule here. You know, from now on, he's saying, whenever and wherever a church meets and a teaching pastor opens God's word, the women are to be included. See, women weren't always included. So that word let, that was a big deal. Let them be included here. Now, those two words, you know, they just describe the spirit of all true disciples. Um, when the Holy Scriptures are open. You know, see, yes, they must learn in quietness, and they must learn with submission, but so are the men. You see, this is not something just for the ladies. Walter Bauer, he says this, quietness, he, yishia, is influenced by the concepts of reverence. It's influenced by the concepts of devotion, and it's influenced by the concept of, of respect. And then T.D. Lee asserts, Paul was not demanding physical silence, but a teachable spirit. That's what he's trying to say here. Now, let me give you a little bit of history so this kind of makes more sense. Understand now that every Jewish man had been taught since his bar mitzvah to respect his rabbi. That was something that they were taught early on. But they also knew that their rabbi, just like them, was not perfect. They knew that as well. But when a rabbi, when he sat down and he opened the scroll, he is said to be sitting in the seat of Moses, and the posture of every godly man changed. You see, their duty was to be fully was to fully submit themselves to the voice of God about to speak through the Holy Scripture. They weren't worshiping the man, but they were in tune with what God was saying through those scriptures. Now, in the early church. It patterned itself, it patterned its, its worship service after the synagogue. So women who had never, ever been allowed to enter a room where men were being taught had to learn how to honor 
um, the seed of Moses and God's word by respectful silence and submission. So this was something new that they had to learn. So maybe that lends some insight to why this statement was made. Now, don't miss how positive and, in fact, how revolutionary this command was. You see, in Greek, Roman, and the Jewish cultures here, women were considered property. That's what they were considered. Yet Jesus showed them shocking respect. Jesus came along, and the rules changed, and things changed altogether here. Look, Jewish rabbis, they did not teach women. That was a no-no. Matter of fact, the Talmud said better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. You know, can you imagine that? Yet Jesus welcomed them, and he deliberately used illustrations and, and images familiar to them because he included them. You see, Jesus chose to reveal himself as a Messiah to a Samaritan woman um, as he taught her theology about eternal life and the nature of true worship. We see that in John chapter 4. And then he taught and he defended Mary when Martha criticized her for choosing to learn over the culturally womanly duties that she was supposed to be taking care of in Luke the 10th chapter in verse 38. And he broke all the rabbi precedents um, by having women in his inner circle of intimate friends, even allowing some of them to travel with him. We see that in Luke the eighth chapter in verses one through three. And think about this: though women they were considered they were considered unreliable and not allowed to be witnesses in Jewish courts. Well, Jesus chose to appear first to Mary Magdalene and sent her to announce his um, resurrection to the 12. We see that in John, the 20th chapter. So you can see that women certainly were included here. Now, <clears throat> the modern feminists say, they say that Paul was a misogynistic chauvinist. They want to say that. They use that word. They throw it around all the time. But I want you to know that Paul taught and he treated women just exactly the way Jesus did. And in Romans, the 16th chapter, he, matter of fact, he greets a list of key co-workers here, and just in that list, he mentions Phoebe and um, Prisca and Mary and Juna and Trevanna and Tryphosa and Persis and Julia and Olympus. So you can see clearly here, Paul has no issue with women serving and leading in a variety of roles. Remember, it was Paul, the Apostle Paul, that wrote Galatians, the third chapter, in verse 28. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, the way of salvation is the same for all men as it is for all women. You know, we have equal standing in the body of Christ. But, of course, that does not change any differences that God designed within us or any roles that he's assigned to us, it doesn't take in, you know, that in consideration, and it does not change any of that. So what I want you to do is be on guard. Be aware of those who say that equality requires ignoring created differences in the role of God's word has assigned in the family and the church. Be aware of those people that say that because they're wrong. Because argue, those are kind of arguments are made by those rejecting biblical authority. In other words, they've just thrown the Bible away. And we talked about that some in Sunday school. We don't like that part, just throw it away. Don't like this, throw it away. 
You know, how much are you going to throw away before you quit? You know, <clears throat> now, moving on down to verse 12 here is one of those very rare verses where God does seem to make a distinction in the roles of men and women. So command number three is this, godly women must not do some things. Godly women must not do some things. Now, how's that for clarity? Um, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, in most contexts, the word quiet here is not a literal banning of speech, but a call to maintain a respectful posture of a disciple sitting at the feet of Jesus. In most cases, that's what that means. But clearly here, something is prohibited, and we want to know what it is. Well, that pro prohibition was no doubt, it was clear to Paul's original audience. I'm sure they understood it, but it's a scholarship challenge for those of us separated by two millennia, culture, and language. We don't always get the same idea that they did. And false teachers today, they want to spin Paul's words to make them cultur culturally acceptable um, or satisfactory or palatable, you know. But true disciples and, true, and the elders of every true church, they must wrestle with how they understand and how will they practically apply this text. You know, this is a tough one here. So here are six facts I think that will help us, all of us, um, do that with integrity. First of all, um, fact number one, the Greek words, I do not permit, mean I do not permit. It's exactly what they mean in the Greek. Enough said on that. Fact number two, Paul speaks with the authority of an apostle. Now, um, now, it's just as prevailing today, ironically, as it was in the very first century, to undermine Paul's apostolic authority. People want to do that. They don't, if something they don't like, they want to undermine it. But that's heretical, and, and you know, and it will not justify um, false beliefs and unbiblical practices. It won't do that. Let me ask you a question. What would our faith be if Paul's words are not, as he claimed they were, the authoritative words of Christ? What would our faith be? Well, number one, we'd have to cut out all of his letters out of the New Testament if they weren't. And then, you know, as, as they were Paul's disciples, you know, we'd have to throw out all of Luke's writings and Hebrews. And then since Peter called Paul's letters scripture, we can't trust Peter's writings or Mark's because he was Peter's nephew. And, um, he told the story um, from Peter's eyes. And then because of their close association with Peter and Paul, you know, we can't trust anything by Matthew, John, or, or the Lord's brothers. So who can we believe? The truth of the matter is idolatrous heretics, they believe whatever they want. And they do. Fact number three, remember the context here is a local church assembly. It's a local church assembly. You know, it's really, it's inappropriate going beyond what the Bible says and to use this verse to make blanket statements about all men and all women in every area of life. 
because it doesn't apply to all men and all women in every area of life. And this verse does not say a woman can never teach or lead a man uh, in other contexts. I want you to remember something. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, you know, it was Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois that's credited for his faith. You remember that? So who had to teach him that? There was two women that taught him that. Fact number four here, Paul's principle here is universal. Now, there certainly there was a local woman's issue in Ephesus. There was one going on there, and it needed to be corrected. In 1 Timothy 5, in verses 13, it tells us that some women had learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Folks, if you've been in a place of leadership, I can guarantee this. I guarantee you it was easier for timid Timothy to kick Hymenaeus and Alexander out of the church than it was to correct these gossiping women. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. Now, Paul's uh, prohibition is unarguably universal for all churches because he said it issues from the order of creation and the nature of the fall. Look at verse 13 and 14. You know, the reason for this rule is this. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And then in verse 15, it says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, this is a hard verse. And you start to dig this one up, it's kind of tough. Well, we know that it does not teach that woman can be eternally saved by giving birth. We know it doesn't teach that at all. So if the word she, if she is any woman, then save must mean, as the word occasionally does, to be preserved or to find fulfillment here in the birthing and mothering of godly children. You know, something men cannot do regardless of what this woke culture tries to shove down your throat. Men cannot bear children. They don't happen that way. Now, it makes sense to me that this is referring to God's prophecy in Genesis. See, Eve and all saved women and all saved men have been saved by childbirth when the seed of woman crushed the serpent's head, as it tells us in the third chapter in the 15th verse of Genesis. And then fact number five here, precisely what is prohibited here is unclear. Precisely what is prohibited here is unclear. Now, our English Bibles indicate that women are not allowed to do two things, or teach or, or uh, exercise authority over men. But some scholars, they argue that this is a uh, hendiatus, you know, a, gra a grammatical device in which a single idea is expressed by two words. It'd be like me saying, it's nice and warm today. You know, it's a grammatic possibility that Paul is saying here, I don't allow women to be a local church's authoritative teacher or teaching pastor. Now, that's a possibility. Don't know. I can't prove that. I'm not a real Greek scholar. But most of the, the reputable Greek scholars say this is possible. But hardly none of them will pin it down and say absolutely for sure. But here's what we do know. Didasco, mean to teach, is the normal word for teaching. We know that. 
And here it's present tense. You know, it could indicate that Paul is not thinking of, of just an occasional act here, but he's, it's an ongoing activity that he's thinking about. Now, in contrast, this is the only time the word authentio, you know, meaning to exercise authority. This is the only time this word appears in Scripture. Now, this is an extremely strong word, often translated to control or to dominate. Well, as it's used in secular literature um, to describe the rule of autocrats, some modern teachers argue this word must refer to an illegitimate uprising of authority, you know, which is inappropriate for men or women. But those who say that, they need to do a little more research. Now, the Greek grammarian, you know, Elias Maurice, in the early second century, said this word means to have one's own jurisdiction. He said that's what it means, which again, when you think about it, might indicate Paul's prohibition is more about an office than an activity. Paul seems to be saying here, I do not allow women to assume the jurisdiction of an elder who must discipline men. So when you do the research here and you really dig down into it, you're going to find out what's prohibited here is really kind of unclear. It's something that I don't know that we can really nail down totally. But let's move on to fact number six. Whatever is forbidden here, it will harmonize with all other Bible teaching. That's something we can count on. So when we don't fully understand something, we go to other like scriptures and see how it harmonizes with it. So whatever is forbidden here, it will harmonize with all other Bible teaching. Now, we all can agree this. We can agree that the Holy Spirit never contradicts himself. Never. That don't happen. So here's what we know. In Titus, the second chapter, it says that a local church, older women, they're to teach the younger women. So we do know that women are to teach in, in some form here. And in Acts 18 and verse 26, Priscilla taught Apollos, but she did it in, the, you know, in private with her husband present. We see that. And then in Acts 21 and verse 9, we see that Philip's four daughters all prophesied here. And based on 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, Paul has no problem whatsoever with women praying or prophesying in a church as long as by wearing head covering, they demonstrate a quiet and submissive spirit. Now, those verses are in there. So here's the $6 million question for you today. What's the difference between the teaching Paul forbids and the prophecy he encourages but regulates? What is the difference there? Well, that's a very good question. Well, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 3 gives us a clue here. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Now, folks, good teaching also does those things. True biblical teaching always is authoritative. It always begins with an exegesis of Scripture, and it always ends with a clear call for submission. Now, folks, I'm not going to say that this passage of Scripture was easy to go through because it wasn't. It took a long time. 
to research that. And I think if you research that, you'll find yourself kind of going in a circle here because no one really wants to nail it down. And when we're given other examples in the scripture, we do see that women are allowed to teach in certain instances. In certain instances, you see, they're allowed to teach. So, as we close, our time's running out. As we close, um, I want to close with this challenge for all the women who profess godliness. When you gather with the Lord's church, properly adorn yourselves. Be respectful and a submissive learner. And as stated positively here, according to your own spiritual gifting, serve and teach and lead whenever doors are open for you that are not forbidden by God. So there's opportunity for you to serve and to teach, only do it in those areas that aren't forbidden by God. Folks, I think that's what the scripture is telling us. And to really be a good steward and a, and, and a student of the word, it requires some study and to dig deep. And folks, because we're separated by culture and time and language, some of it's hard for us to understand. But when we try to put ourselves in the shoes of those in the first century and look at the original language, it starts to be a little more clear to us. And a good student will take what is clear and will act on it. On those things we can serve and we can do and we can we go about those things. The things that are unclear, let's see how they harmonize with other parts of the scripture. You see, everything we will not know until the Lord comes back. There's going to be some things we're just not going to know. No matter how hard we try, we're not going to know. But the things that we can, we need to act on. And we need to serve our Lord of Lords and King of Kings in the best way that we can. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's so good to be in your house this morning. And Father, sometimes the passages like 1 Timothy difficult to understand. But Father, we pray that you would enlighten us and open our hearts to see the true meaning of your word. Jesus' name, amen.